Guardian Unlimited. And welcome to Islamophonic, your weekly window into the United Caliphate of Britain. In today's show, we look at Muslim men and Muslim women. In the studio is Zora Musa from the Fawcett Society, the Inequality Gap Campaign Group. Hello, Zora. Hi. Zora, do you think Muslim men and women are better off than they were 20 years ago? Uh, I think in some ways, yeah, they are better off. Um, but I think that's mostly because generally people are better off. So I think as Muslims, they're not doing as well as they could be doing. I think uh, Britain as a whole is advancing as, as a society does, but Muslims in particular are just increasingly targeted. Now it came to my attention, from Zora in fact, that one of the longest-running dedicated support services, the Muslim Women's Helpline, has been forced to hang up. The helpline has been around for 19 years, providing an understanding ear and advice to Muslim women in need. Sarah Sharif, one of the original founders of the helpline, came into the studio to tell us what went wrong. Main reason, lack of funds, um, but we've, we've perennially had problems with funding and you know something has happened and we've been able to kickstart again. But this time I think everybody was just very, very tired with the struggle. And so when the helpline started, 19, 20 years ago. What kind of calls were you getting? Same sort of calls, unfortunately, that we, we were getting up until we closed. Um, marriage, relationship, uh, issues around women's rights, um, contentions about whether this is Islamic or not Islamic. You know, c- can I have a, a higher education? My parents say no. Am I allowed to in Islam? We found ourselves doing um, supporting women through faith, you know, giving them access to knowledge that perhaps they didn't have because their understanding of religion was mediated through family and culture. So a helpline organisation that didn't judge them and didn't assume that they were, you know, um, oppressed because of Islam, but that Islam was a source of their strength and that could be supported was very important for them. So the kind of advice where you you were giving them, was that done through volunteers or did you have a neutral third party who was able to give advice from an Islamic perspective? Uh, well, our main role was non-judgmental support service but when it came to something more involved, for example, religious knowledge, Sharia, we, we passed uh, the women on to specific you know, um, imams who were supportive and willing to give women access to the knowledge that they needed. I was going to say, how forthcoming were those people? Did you have to go and actively find them out and persuade people or do, did people naturally come on board? Uh, some people came on board um, naturally after the initial suspicion that we were just another feminist organisation trying to undermine um, families, etc., um, the next thing was, um, oh, yes, they're doing very good work, let them get on with it, you know, and really give men an excuse to abdicate their responsibility for family issues. And a lot of the issues that our women brought were issues that really needed the men to get involved with and, and deal with as well because we were just supporting one side of the equation and not the other. So from your work with the Muslim Women's Helpline, what have you come to know about the state that Muslim women are in? Things things have improved. I mean, there's a lot of awareness. Um, there's lots of work being done by, by Muslim women, particularly in the, in the more metropolitan areas. Um, but there's really a lack of proper attention given to Muslim young men. The interesting conclusion that we came to was that there's a lot of work now to be done with Muslim men. And finally, how did staff feel about saying goodbye to the helpline? Very disappointed. And in fact, what, what some of them have done is just kept two of our helpline numbers diverted to them at home. 
that was a very interesting point she made about Muslim men, and we're going to come back to that later. For now, though, Zora, you've done quite a lot of work on Muslim women in British society. How are they doing socially and economically? It's quite a mixed bag, actually. Um, When you're talking about Muslims, you're talking about quite a few different kinds of people within that category. So um, different groups of Muslim women are doing better than other groups of Muslim women. So some of the most notorious statistics we have are on Pakistani and Bangladeshi women who are doing um, quite poorly economically, for instance. So underrepresented in the labor market, getting paid very poorly. But we know a lot less about some of the other groups of Muslim women. So, for instance, the Somali community we know very little about because not a lot of people are tracking what's happening. So where do Muslim women go for advice? I mean, the Muslim Women's Helpline was just some one thing that was out there. What other support is there? I think that's actually one of the main challenges that Muslim women face. There isn't a lot of services out there for them to access um, from a Muslim perspective and then also from a women's perspective. So a lot of the mainstream services that serve Muslim people don't cater for the particular needs of women and can be actually very sexist, very dictatorial as well in terms of what's right, what's wrong, what's haram, what's halal, all that kind of stuff um, that often tends to be about restricting women's movement, um, ideas about purity and honour and all those types of things get reinforced, cultural ideas, but because they're coming from Muslims, Muslim women might take very seriously. So it's not actually meeting their needs. Now, Sarah said the helpline was getting a growing number of calls from men and that more work needs to be done with men. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I I think so, definitely. Um, I don't think you can talk about the issues with Muslim women without understanding that it's actually a relationship with Muslim men, um, that that's that's what the problem is. It's not like Muslim women are born and suddenly have problems. Um, A lot of the disenfranchisement or the heavy policing of women's bodies or uh, the kind of sensationalization of what happens to Muslim women and and lots of men talking about what's happening. It's actually more a reflection about what's going on with them and what they're thinking and um, other kinds of crises of identity that are happening. So, Wither the Muslim Man. Our intrepid producer Matt Hayward went off to learn more about the work of one group reaching out to Muslim youths. My name is Homera Khan. I'm a consultant on Muslim affairs. I'm also a trustee of Anissa Society, which is an organisation managed by women that works for the welfare of Muslim families. We are running a series of projects working with Muslim boys and young men. At the moment, what we're doing is we're running a two-week summer scheme on Muslim identity, and uh, it's called British Muslim or What? And this is for the age group of between 13 and 15. Okay, next. Well, what's really good is uh, uh, the different workshops that they've been doing. Some of them have really brought out some of their skills, like their art skills and things. Yeah, that's great. That's uh, sort of done that on his... He designed these geometric patterns himself, and he's got his name in the middle, written in Arabic, well, with a calligraphy uh, script, basically which is really good. That's brilliant. What's so interesting about these boys is that they're so obviously British. They talk nothing but football, right? In between, they're doing Islamic calligraphy, and while they're doing the calligraphy, they're talking about the Charity Shield match and Liverpool. And But the fact is that they are Muslim, and this is what they have to come to grips with. And you see, that's very difficult to articulate as a teenager, as an adolescent, to your peer group. A lot of what we've done is... The youngsters have talked about what their fears are and what they feel out there. Uh, and it's about replacing those fears with something more positive. I certainly do think there is a, a big need for this kind of work. But what makes it particularly pertinent is the climate that we're in, post 9-11. It's absolutely imperative that we don't allow 
what's happening in the world today to alienate our youngsters. You said before that, that this had grown out of some projects that you're doing with Muslim women. Yeah. Well, Can you tell me about that? Yeah, in the early years, a lot of our work was actually around women because in the mid-80s, that was where the real crisis was. And we found that a lot of the women, if you ask them, what do they need to make themselves happy? Invariably, what they say is that they want their husbands to get a job or they want their husbands to communicate better with their children, particularly with the sons. We started focusing a little bit more on men. Men were contacting us a lot more, but uh, they felt that... Uh, they wanted it in an environment which is sensitised to their culture and their faith. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the challenges that, that, that Muslim men in particular face um, today? They feel that uh, they face a lot of prejudice every time they face anybody because they see a Muslim man, particularly if, if he's obviously looking like a Muslim man, maybe the way he dresses, his beard or a hat or something like that, then immediately people think all the worst things, that he, possibly he's a suicide bomber, he's, going to, he's a wife, you know, they, people think that. So some men can deal with it, but many men can't. Some of the things that they were saying was that they need a space to think some of these things through. Uh, and one of the issues, for example, was this great sense of loss of uh, authority, particularly from first-generation Muslim fathers. Uh, and with the second generation Muslim fathers I spoke to, their issue was, again, the opposite to that. Because they're more able to articulate their thinking because they're brought up here, uh, they felt very frustrated that they weren't able to talk to their fathers and articulate their feeling. It's not that they didn't love them, but then often the inability to articulate created schisms and, and created fractures in the relationships. Do you think there's a stigma attached at all to, to needing help from Muslim men? I think Muslim men do find it difficult to ask for help, generally speaking, uh, because in our cultures, uh, the man is the provider, he's the strength, and he's the person who is the solution finder, let's say. Uh, so to say that you're struggling with some of these things, it would be very difficult. I think we don't want what we see as our traditional roles or our strengths within our genders to prevent us from moving forward, prevent us from communicating. Uh, and I think that's what's been happening a little bit. Humaira Khan from Anissa. Still with me, Zora Musa from the Fawcett Society. What did you think of that? Um, I'm actually familiar with Humaira and Anissa's work, and they do quite good work, and they've been doing it for a long time, well before many other Muslim organisations were active, or w even before a faith-based perspective was seen as a legitimate way um, to think about service delivery. So they're quite good. Um, I guess the only thing I would say is in talking about men, not to lose the focus on women, actually. So it's true that men have particular issues, and Muslim men have particular issues that they're struggling through and are worth talking about, um, I do think it's important to maintain a focus on Muslim women because some of the information we have on how Muslim women are doing in Britain are, are so stark. I mean, you said earlier that we know more about some groups than others. Why is more attention paid to sort of South Asian women in Britain than, say, Somali women? Some of that's just a historical thing in terms of the migration patterns and also in terms of how we collect statistics. I think generally... You know, Asians have been, South Asians have been in England for a lot longer. So they've been able to make their mark on a lot of issues. So we, you know, we see more um, British South Asians in the media, for instance, whereas there's not a lot of representation from some other groups. In terms of the particular crises affecting men, one of the things you mentioned was identity. And the other seems to be the ability or the space to express an opinion. What do you make of that? Um, on identity, I think 
some of that is just sort of being of immigrant heritage that you'll have some kind of identity issue. I think with the the Muslim factor, if you want to call it that, is around geopolitical stuff. So we have 9-11, we have 7-7, we have current wars, we have... Um, we have anti-terror legislation as exactly. well. Exactly. Um, and so some of that sort of forces you to contend with identity where otherwise you may not have. But even if you don't self-identify that way, other people will be defining you that way. So in some ways, it's just a reaction to current climate. Does talking make a difference, do you think? Yeah, sure. I don't see how it could hurt anything to talk. So why aren't we talking? I mean, I know we're talking, <laughs> but we're different. But, what, but, you know, if you go to somewhere like Bradford, for example, that the culture of kind of being open and honest doesn't really exist. Um, well, I'm not from Bradford, so I'm not sure I could say a whole lot about what goes on in Bradford. Um, but in terms of why people aren't communicating, uh, I think it I think it depends on what we're talking about. I think some people are communi- communicating in certain spaces. It's just that that might not be in the public arena. Would you like to know more about what's happening in Bradford? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, someone who thinks that more should be done to support the emotional needs of young Muslim men is Zaf Shah. He's a community worker and he does come from Bradford. We met a few months ago at a radicalisation conference in London and he believes that some of the issues we've been discussing, like communication and identity crises and intergenerational conflict, can lead to young men like Shazar Tanwir becoming involved in 7-7. We met again earlier this week, this time in Bradford's Town Hall Square. What brought you up to Bradford? Uh, I had to talk to somebody. All right. Hey, it looks really nice, Bradford. <laughs> Is it always like this? Uh, I suppose so. I was quite intrigued by the academic's take was on what causes radicalisation and I've heard so much and I want to see for myself what the academics were talking about. And you made some points during the event and afterwards you were completely mobbed. What did you say and why do you think it caused so much interest? I wanted to display a scenario where they can then understand what makes people go over the edge. How do young men arrive at such a scenario? Well, if your vast majority of South Asians are living in deprived areas, or Muslims live in deprived areas, uh, and in those deprived areas they have a poor education system, poor housing, poor health, and couple all those together, they go through the system, they don't really get the opportunity to make things better, so they are then thinking, them, thinking to themselves that, look, we've done everything we possibly can, and we feel like we're pretty much up against the wall now. Is this problem specific to young men, do you think? Not necessarily young men. You're probably going to find it's going to be it's going to be older men, 25, 26 years and above, who uh, who've had the experiences of life, if you like, and and come out at the other end of it with no positive outcome, going out and committing an atrocity, if you like, and saying that we're doing this in the name of Islam, which is clearly wrong, and and thinking that's the solution to their problems. What about things like um, the role of men in society? It seems that Muslim women are making more progress and there's more support out there for women. Do you get the feeling that the same provisions are being made for men? I do believe there are the same provisions for the men, but unfortunately some of the men are not looking for them provisions uh, hard enough. Uh, If the women can find them, I don't see why the men can't find them. In terms of emotional support as well, do you get the feeling that Muslim men are more emotionally illiterate than before? I totally agree with that because there's a lack of touchy-feely in Muslim men. Uh, if they've got a son, they, they don't hug and kiss their sons uh, like, a, say, for example, a, a Caucasian family would. Whereas, I mean, I've got two children and I'm always hugging and kissing my two, two girls. And if I had a boy, I'd be just the same with the boy. And there's got to be that because if there's a divide, the son will never think he can step over that line to ask his dad a very sensitive question. What about the mosques and the imams? What's their role in all of this? 
the Muslims and Imams' role is particularly religious. Um, they don't have a great deal of a community role. Some of the elders may approach them, but some of the men will not approach Imams for any spiritual guidance or advice. And they, in fact, they won't even approach their parents for that spiritual guidance or advice. They'd rather approach a friend or go on the internet. What do you think are the emotional and social challenges facing Muslim men growing up in Britain? Well, what we've got now is we're always told that we are British Asians or British Muslim Asians. Um, we're British, full stop. Um, and if I, and I, in fact, I was in America and I got stopped at New York airport. They asked me what, what, what my origins were, what's my background. And I said, I'm British. Where were you born? I said, Bradford. So what are your origins? I said, Yorkshire. I said, that's where I'm from. And, and I'm sick of labels. Uh, the more labels you put on us, the more you alienate our communities. About prejudices within a particular community, though, sometimes it's not the other that's the enemy. You get bigotry in your own neighbourhood. What kind of prejudices exist, as you see it, where you're from? We do sometimes have an enemy within, uh, and we have a very careful careful balance to establish, and that balance is that if we're going to start working with the mainstream, we've got to be very careful that we're not seen as coconuts. We have to be careful we're not seen as too Asian when we go to work, and we've got to be careful not seeing us too white when we go back into our communities. So it's difficult, but it can be done. With regards to men and the challenges that they have, what other hurdles do they have to overcome with their peers, for example, or the elder generation? The biggest hurdles that we have is communication. Um, unfortunately, to communicate with the fathers. Hard in the sense that if a son's got a view about Islam, and his father's practiced that for many years, and his grandfather did, and his great-grandfather did, all of a sudden the son comes down with a novel new idea about how he, they should practice Islam. He's going to find that very difficult. So we need to start looking at how we can start communicating with our kids much more effectively, uh, and being involved in extracurricular activities with our children much more effectively. So basically you're saying the communication gap between kids and their parents leads kids, as they get older, to confide in their friends more, or to get advice from people who don't necessarily have their best interests at heart or don't actually know what's correct. This is why the terrorists are so successful at recruiting young men or Muslim men, uh, not necessarily from disenfranchised families, but from families where there's a communication breakdown. If there's a communication breakdown from father to son or from a friend to, a, um, from a friend to another friend, then these people spot that vacuum very, very well and then they fill it. And that's where a lot of parents who you'll find who have had incidents where their kids have been arrested for terrorism will say, we had no idea. Shazad Tanwaj happens to be um, a nephew of a very, very good friend of mine. And um, when I spoke to my friend, he said he had absolutely no idea that he'd done this. When I said to him, don't you think that was because you won't communicate with him? He said, yes, I do. We weren't talking enough. And he went off the rails. But yet he was seeking an education. Um, he was doing okay. His family, as far as they were concerned, they were communicating all right. But he lived in a very deprived area of Leeds and um, he felt he was, uh, he was being shunned at every opportunity. And then somebody comes along and offers you a solution and you think that solution is the right one. And it's very, very sad. That is what we as Muslims in Britain have to challenge and challenge it constantly on a daily basis. Otherwise, we're not going to get rid of it and it'll be with us for, for, for many more years to come. Sora, is he right? About which bit? I hear you ask. Yeah. I mean, he says that, I mean, there's some stuff we can change, some stuff we can't. One of the things we can be doing is communicating, providing support and understanding to, you know, keep our young men on the right path, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's that would hurt nothing, obviously. So that, that could be a good thing, of course. More communication is helpful, families communicating and um, knowing what each other's doing. Those are all good things. Whether that will actually solve the trick of 
de-radicalization, that I'm not sure of, because there seem to be a few things going on there in terms of some of it was about um, living in deprived areas, mm. but then it was about actually not communicating within your family, and then it was about, you know, something else. And then, you know, we didn't have the big elephant in the room of foreign policy. So it just seemed like a lot of different things being used as the explanation for why something was happening, and a lot of those things are, you know, very real grievances. I mean, he did mention foreign policy, but for him, he was saying that radicalization occurs in your teens, maybe, or in your late teens, when it's about education and employment opportunities and things that are going on at home, for example, and not necessarily foreign policy, that foreign policy actually comes a lot later as a motivating factor. Um, I, I mean, possibly, yes. An alternative thesis was presented in Dispatches on Monday night. Filmmaker Phil Reese investigated the roots of Islamic extremism and the battle to win hearts and minds, and the programme lay the blame firmly at the door of foreign policy. Britain under attack. The government in a battle to prevent Islamic militants bombing the country that is their home. Terrorists attack the values that are shared by all law-abiding citizens. We need to ensure that the message of the terrorists is rejected. We hear from men who justify attacks on Britain and send a different message to British Muslims. You must arm yourself. It is a war, and it's a war against Islam. Tonight, Dispatches asks, can the government win the battle for Muslim hearts and minds? Zora, what did you think of Dispatches? Um, I think it was sort of a similar problem to the one before where it's just trying to come up with one simple answer for what is actually a complicated problem and it's ignoring some things by focusing just on the one thing. What I'm interested to know is why it affects the men more than it might be affecting the women and how are women adapting because there were some very vocal women on the dispatches show who seemed passionate and you know quite equally annoyed with foreign policy but yet they are not the people we're talking about when we talk about radicalisation generally. It's always about men. I mean, I think I know the women you're talking about. There were were three young women um, towards the end of the show um, and they were discussing what they would do if they found out, for example, a preacher was sending out radical messages at mosque and one of them said, I would take my child out of that mosque straight away. There was that one, and there was also the teacher who, um, when they were talking about the curriculum, who was asking some leading questions about would you... um, observe one minute silence uh, when Britain's never observed it for the Palestinians, for instance, which was you know, quite a leading question. And the group of kids was, I don't know, five or six or something. I mean, quite young. So, we, I mean, women are playing quite a perv- key role there, but we're not actually talking about radicalization of them in the same way. And I'm just, I find that interesting. Do you uh, have any theories? <laughs> are we just more sensible? Uh I, I don't know that I'd, I'd say that. Um. Well, I've said it for you. There you go. <laughs> Seriously, why is this a male problem? Because there are female suicide bombers. There have been female yep. suicide bombers, yeah. not in this country. Do you think it's a question of when rather than if? Um, I don't know. And I also don't know how well those would compare to here. So the suic- the female suicide bombers, I mean, you know, Palestine's a good example. Um, but the particular circumstances for Palestine are so different than they are here. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know if it would translate in the same way. So, th- I mean, I'm just, you know, trying to think about other reasons it could be of, of why it happens the way it does here in Britain. And I think that might have something to do with access to opportunity or how the, how the mosques work. 
but I don't know. I mean, I've been on a few demonstrations where there has been a small but very vocal group of young Muslim women. When such incidents are being reported, it's always radical Muslim men. It's never radical Muslim women. Yeah. I mean, and there's also the women who talk about, you know, I'm glad my husband did this and mm. he's a martyr and, and that kind of thing. So they, they certainly share the sensibilities mm. and they share the the idea of what their husbands or their the men in their lives are doing. It's not like sh- they shy away from that. Um, I wonder if it's something about how we uh, like to think about Muslim women and not see them as, you know, very aggressive or something like that. Speaking of aggression, do you think, here's a hard question that I warned you about, do you think the jihadi assertiveness by Muslim men is a counter to the emasculation they feel in the face of modernity and the assertiveness of westernised Muslim women? That sounds like a PhD thesis <laughs> in cultural anthropology. Um, I think there's probably a few things bound up in that. I definitely think our ideas about masculinity and femininity are in transition right now. I think some people find that very scary and alarming. I think um, that Muslim women are coming into their own in some ways, and there's been a reaction to that. So we do see um, a lot more rhetoric around what Muslim women should be wearing and doing and acting, um, which I think is a response to that Uh and I, I think I would probably leave it at that. So you don't want to discuss, uh, you know, the possibility that Muslim men are more sexualized since 9-11 and 7-7? I, I think I'd have to pass. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Zora, for joining us. Next week, we have a Pakistani special. It's my mother country's 60th birthday. Hooray! To celebrate, we're looking at Lollywood. We have an interview with the maker of BBC Two documentary Karachi Uncovered. That's next Monday night, so set your Sky Plus. And inshallah, we'll be talking cricket and horoscopes too. Now, I am paying attention to what you're saying on the blog. You want to know about black Muslims, new Muslims, gay Muslims, ex-Muslims, proselytising Muslims, continental Muslims, aborting Muslims and sporting Muslims. Thank you very much for that input. All of it from one person. But there's only one of me and I will see what I can do. Inshallah, we will try to make this happen. Do keep your comments coming. Jazakallah for listening. And until next week, wa alaikum as